This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Brian and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, September 9th, 2017. And today, we are going to be reviewing two movies, one of which is brand spanking new. That would be the new version of Stephen King's It that has recently hit the theaters. The second movie we're going to be talking about is literally 40 years old. And that would be Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the 1977 Steven Spielberg special effects spectacular. It has been re-released in theaters as part of a 4K restoration for the movie. No word on whether or not they erased guns from the hands of the military and replace them with walkie-talkies, but I suspect that is not the case. So we're going to be talking about both those movies today, but before we do, uh, Brian, how's your last couple of weeks? Good. Uh, I've been well. I've been productive, so can't, can't complain. Nothing super exciting and notable happened? Oh, you're gonna put me on the spider. I mean, not no. Okay, I know me personally, but I just uh, have a nose of the grindstone. Been editing and writing to bring my readers the best science fiction and fantasy that I can bring them. Um, and we would like to welcome our other host, fellow host uh, Dornall, on the show. Dornall, how's your last couple of weeks been? Hey, man, they've been pretty good. Uh, we just had packs in town last weekend. I did skip that uh, in favor of my own local gaming, which is doing quite well. Uh, but it's been it's been a couple of weeks. I could complain about other stuff, but nobody logs on to listen to that. Um, well, the reason why we didn't have a show last week was because not only was it a vacation weekend, um, Memorial Day weekend, but I, your host, had a family reunion to attend low out in the vasty wilderness here. And so without a broadcast studio uh, or indeed any internet connection at all, I couldn't do the show. So we just, you know, got together and said, hey, let's not do a show this week. We'll go off and, and enjoy our various weekends. And so we have done. We have rested ourselves. We have gotten rid of the ennui and fatigue that was plaguing us. And we have come back rested, refreshed, and ready to deliver another excellent podcast. Um, a couple of things, a couple of business I'd like to get out of the way real quick. We had a, a hurricane that hit Houston and another one that is on its way to Florida. I uh, would like to extend the condolences of those uh, to anyone listening from us on the show towards anyone who gets hurt uh, either in the future or in the past from either of these events and also recommend those of you that live in Florida to get the hell out. If you're in Florida, leave, especially southern, southern Florida. The projections are not good and the amount of damage this hurricane is doing is immense, so please leave the places where you're at if you are in southern Florida. Also, yeah. also yesterday, the news broke 
that uh, Dr. Jerry Pornell, one of the modern grandmasters of science fiction, has passed away. Um, on his stories up until the very end, in fact, he left a blog post on his Chaos Manor blog the night before he died. He's been dealing with health. If you've read Chaos Manor, you know he's been dealing with health problems for a, a long, long time. He was over 80 years old, and he finally, finally um, passed away, which I'm a big fan of Dr. Purnell. I'm a big fan especially of the books he did with Larry Niven. And so it is a tragedy um, to have someone so respected, uh, someone so august. It leaves science fiction and fantasy poorer, and it especially leaves the science fiction and fantasy writers of America poorer, because one of the last sane voices, one of the last sane factions in the SFWA has been deprived of a, uh, one of its leaders. So very tragic and we want to extend uh, sympathies to the family of Dr. Purnell and his co-workers. Um, I want to second that and also uh, I had heard from someone who was also a Jerry Purnell fan and had been following his blog that um, Dr. Purnell came down with something that he caught at Dragon Con which was the, the last con he attended. So just want to Remind people, you know, who might be of uh, advanced or very young age or have compromised immune systems, you know, don't uh, don't take the con crud lightly. Take precautions, or if you think that you know there might be a risk, don't go. You know, the, the the fun isn't worth it. You know, not saying for sure that that even contributed to the uh, to to his tragic passing, but you know, it's just something to keep in mind. Remember, don't shake hands, fist bump. Is pumped. Important safety tip. So, wow, all of our news today was really depressing. Oh, yeah. I mean, on a lighter note, the the entire Pacific Northwest is on fire, and I've been living under a cloud of ash for the past five days. Well, that's cool. Uh, did you see the picture of the gentleman golfing in front of the flames? I did. Wasn't that incredible? That was awesome. The, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> People think it's a photoshopped picture. It's, it's literally not a photoshopped picture. These three guys were really out there golfing on the golf course when they started. The flames were far away. The hill was just beginning a little to go up a little bit in fire. And then by the time they got to you know the seventh hole, it was pretty much engulfed. And then that picture was taken on the ninth hole. By the way. Uh, people have also said that it was a trick of the um, you know depth of field or, or photographic tricks. That that hill was literally less than a mile away from those golfers. It was about a mile away. So everything you see in that photo is actually legit. It is not photoshopped, and the hill really was as close as it looks. And if you haven't heard about this photo, you got to check it out. I'll see if I can uh, find it and drop a link in the description. It's just these three golfers standing in front of a hill that is now engulfed in flames. Um, and I should say, in a matter of coincidence, we've had our own fires up here uh, this week. There have been people who have had to be evacuated. Not as much as the Pacific Northwest, uh, oddly enough. But, uh, yeah, we've had, we've had a lot of fires where I am. Well, I mean, at the very least, we get to live through the end times. I mean, I was hoping the world wasn't going to end in my lifetime. I was getting pretty bored of the place. I don't know about you. That's the spirit. <laughs> so, um, that's right. Come to Geek Gab for all your dark humor needs. 
So, by no, the way, it's not ours to decide, you know, how to tend the garden. You know. um, I'm pretty sure that Brian and I both went and watched it, but um, I'm also pretty sure that John has not. Am I mistaken in any of those particulars? Uh, there's a very important question that I must ask uh, that will determine the answer to that. Is Pennywise played by Tim Curry? No, no, he's not. Not in this one. Well, then there's no reason for me to see this movie. <laughs> they gave him the chance and he turned it down. Well, I mean, maybe from his perspective, that's a good solution or, or a good uh, good decision. But it makes me sad. Yeah, I can understand what you're saying. I mean, I I loved Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise. I still do. It, it's kind of like a Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger as the Joker thing. But uh, we'll get into it when we get into discussing it. I, I think my take on it will surprise you. Um, by the way, which movie do you want to take on first? Do you want to take on the 40-year-old sci-fi special effects spectacular? Or do you want to take on the, you know, like one-week-old uh, horror special effects spectacular? Why don't you warm us up? With a little bit of nostalgia, let's talk about Close Encounters. Okay. Close Encounters was the first big movie that Steven Spielberg did. His other movie before this was a movie called Duel. It was about two drivers getting, you know, about road rage, basically. And it wasn't actually originally supposed to be a theatrical release. It was a television movie that was later, uh, they made the decision to release it in theaters. So if you want to know where Steven Spielberg came from as a director, it started right here with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And you can see in... Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is what I thought was most interesting. Is not just that um, Steven Spielberg directed it, so this is where he starts out. It's that you can see um, in this one movie elements that show up in at least a couple of uh, films that Steven Spielberg is directly involved in. Uh, some of the shots with the toys going crazy. Um, are also mirrored five years later in Poltergeist. And although Steven Spielberg is not the director of record for Poltergeist, he was involved heavily in Poltergeist. Um, and yeah, so... Very, I've got... Uh, I've, I've done some research into that. I'll have to talk about it sometime. But we'll, we'll save that for another show. Um, and, of course, many of the elements that later show up in E.T., also uh, come out of this movie because those two, the two movies, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind E.T., are both similar in a lot of fundamental respects. So what does it mean? Close Encounters of the Third Kind was phraseology that came out in the 50s and 60s, I think. Um, it talks about a close encounter of the first kind was, you know, seeing a UFO. Closer encounter of the second kind was even getting closer and close encounter of third kind was actually meeting the aliens um, or something similar. So this is about close encounters of the third kind. It's about UFOs. It's about um, aliens from outer space coming down to earth. And it's specifically about several people who were 
in during the first half of this movie, people have these near encounters with UFOs. And various things happen to them as a result of it. Many of them become obsessed with drawing this one particular piece of landscape over and over again or sculpting it. They also become obsessed with a particular uh, five-note tune. And the remainder of the movie is these people pursuing their obsession and a few of them figuring out that this particular piece of terrain is in fact Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Make it, I'm going to spoil this movie because it's 40 years old, folks. It's 40 years old. If you haven't seen it yet, that's on you. Um, making their way to Devil's Tower, and then the last half of the film is um, getting to Devil's Tower, sneaking on the military base they've set up there to try and keep everybody else away from this uh, event that's about to occur, and then the spaceships, the alien spaceships coming down. They release all these people that they've picked up going, you know, as far back as the 1800s, at least judging by the dress of one of the characters, and then uh, bring take some new people up into the ship and leave. These, you know, 15, 20 people get into the starship and go off to uh, some other world. That is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So... Uh, now, I have seen the whole movie before, but I saw it again yesterday because it's a 40th anniversary. They did a 4K restoration, released it in theaters. Um, so, you know, you can you can watch it again in the theaters if you haven't had a chance to watch it before. The, spe the special effects, by the way, really hold up well. And they hold up well primarily because they're done at night, so they're hard to see, and they are heavily shrouded in darkness with bright lights and so you don't have to have a lot of fine detail on the models um, although the last ship the mothership the big ship they do get some really nice detail but it's not surface detail it's not what uh, artists would call greebles like if you remember star wars when you saw shots of the death star or the uh, star destroyers how there were what looked like conduits and uh, windows and uh, you know little square bits representing structure. None of that is there. It's all fairly smooth and, and all of the details are communicated with light. And so it helps hide any of the uh, any of the flaws that optical that optical uh, or old school uh, practical effects had, which you can see uh, in uh, you know, in Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back or whatever. So um, it's it's the special effects hold up really, really well. It's uh, it's uh, you know, so it's it's a. I'm, I'm gonna hold off. John, have you have you seen the movie at all? Never. Okay. I've never seen it. Have you heard about it? Of course, it's a phrase I've heard uh, you know hundreds of times. Maybe dozens of times. Uh, I, I didn't realize that it was... Uh, I'm glad to know that it was a phrase before the movie because I, I'm pretty sure I, I hadn't you always heard it in the context of the movie. Um, it, I always just thought it meant meat and aliens. Um, here's, I remember the movie being boring when I was a kid. 
I didn't necessarily like it all that much. Um, and now that I've come back to it as an adult with a more mature taste, having had, you know, decades to, to grow into an adult taste of film, being able to understand slower films, being able to understand more operatic films, being able to understand films that are in large part visual, uh, spectacle, I would, I would have to say that Close Encounters is still boring. It's still a really boring movie. Um, and the reason why is for the last half of the movie, literally nothing changes. Nothing happens. Now, there, you're going to say, what? Of course things happen. His wife leaves him. He builds a huge sculpture out of mud in his house of Devil's Tower. He leaves Devil's Tower. He has to go through all these events to get to Devil's Tower, and then he goes and sees the aliens. Then he gets in a ship. That's a whole lot of stuff happening. The status quo of the character does not change. He does not make any decisions. He does not change direction from Halfway through the script, when Terry Gar, who plays his wife, leaves, the main character goes in a straight line. Richard Dreyfus, who plays Roy Neary, this is the main character, goes in a straight line towards the uh, alien encounter with the starship. Sure, some things get in his way, but they don't really deflect him all that much. And nothing of significance, no choices on his part are made. He never has any second thoughts. No other considerations uh, push him. Uh, there's no conflict for him. There's nothing that makes him internally have to reaffirm his decision. He sees this UFO, he becomes obsessed with this UFO, and then it's just a series of scenery until he gets to the UFO. It is like, in one sense, a travelogue where you stick a GoPro camera on a boat and send it down a whitewater rafting. And that can be very exciting because the raft is jumping up and down and there's water splashing everywhere and you see people paddling. So there are things going on in that sense, but there is not a plot. There's not a story. That's just spectacle. There is nothing real. No choices are being made. No characters are really interacting. You start it at the top of the river and it flows to the bottom of the river and there is no chance whatsoever that it will divert to the left or divert to the right. The film, the last half of the film, is entirely empty of human passion, of human drive, of, of recognizable human emotions. Terry Gar's reaction to her husband being obsessive about this, his encounter with the UFO, her reaction to everybody mocking them, her reaction to him getting fired and not caring and not looking for a new job, her reaction to him getting mocked, openly mocked by the military in a press conference along with everybody else, those are all human events. And when she blows up and gets angry at his lack of emotion, 
um, his lack of almost his narcissism and focusing in only on these aliens and only on whatever's going on in his head, which he doesn't really understand. His lack of emotion it comes across as being robotic and um, flat. Hers is entirely understandable, so she takes the kids and she leaves. And that departure it marks the point in which all human emotion leaves the movie. There is nothing um, since then. So you've got to... Um, it, 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 it's very unsatisfying. What's wrong with the... What's wrong with the movie is that after that point, there's no one we can empathize with. Because literally no one we see, not the military, not the scientists, and not the main character, not the mom, really has recognizable human emotions. The movie is entirely intellectual. It's entirely psychological. It's entirely um, about ideas and concepts and special effects. It is, there is almost no human drive in it. And it just makes the movie flat, it, despite the spectacular special effects, despite what could, uh, John Williams score. John Williams is brilliant. Um, and he did this movie just after doing Star Wars. Despite all of that, it comes across as flat and boring and uninteresting because there's no stakes. And... This guy, Neary, his family leaves him, and he just continues on his merry way. He doesn't try to reach out to his wife. He doesn't try to do anything. He just continues on his merry way. And he meets another woman uh, whose son was taken by the aliens. She's being driven by recognizable emotions. Her son's been taken. She wants him back. She's also kind of obsessed. And there's a semi-slight romantic angle there between the two, and you think, oh, well, these two, you know, they might bond over this shared experience. Yes, his family's fallen apart, but maybe he finds something new with her. No, at one point, he just kind of kisses her. It's the only real affection they show, and then he goes and leaves and goes towards the spaceship, and then the spaceship lands. Her son comes out, and she's really, really happy, and he just gets on. He forgets about his job. He forgets about Earth. He forgets about his family. He forgets about his children. He forgets about his wife. He just gets on the spaceship, and that's it. That's, that's the end of the movie. They fly off. It's very, very disappointing. Um, so, that's, that's all you it. can really say. Yeah. I always found something about it, and I've never seen it all the way through but just alienating. And I think you put your finger on it, just that absence of human emotion and character arcs. I mean, it could have been. You could have done something important with it. I mean, or you could have done something recognizably human with it. If instead of it being about him and his, this other woman whose son was taken, you could make it about, you know, him and his wife and his family go out to see the UFOs. They see the UFOs again, and then their kids disappear. So now it's about him and his wife. 
not just because they're obsessed with um, Devil's Tower, but because as a team, their kids are gone. And they're fighting to get to this landing spot because if they get to this landing spot, they believe they can get their kids back or at least they can find out from the aliens why. Why did they take their kids? What happened to their kids? Are their kids still alive? Um, that could have been very easily, and then leave everything else the same. Absolutely everything else about the journey the same. That gives the character stakes. That gives them a drive. I mean, the even the movie even has characters ask him again and again and again, why are you going here? Why are you doing that? He doesn't have an answer because the screenwriter had an answer because doesn't have an answer because Steven Spielberg doesn't have an answer. He had no answers to why this character was on this journey what he was doing, and because the character isn't driven by something recognizable, because the character can't articulate it, or we as the audience can't articulate it, the trip, the journey is meaningless. Um, but if they had made it to where it wasn't him and this random woman, where it was him and Terry Gar, and they're going to try and get their kids, that would have been a, a, a scenes with stakes. And then when something gets in their way, when the military gets in their way, you want them to break through because they have to get past this military to get to their kids. When they see these things happening, at one point the military is faking some kind of uh, poison gas release, and so they see all these dead cows. So now you have the tension ratcheted up. Are they going to stop short because they might get killed if they go into this area? Or are they going to keep on pushing on because of their kids? And then you have geographic barriers. They have to make their way up this mountain and around the shoulder to get to the meeting spot while being chased by soldiers with guns, while being chased by helicopters, and that's an obstacle. Are they going to be able, despite their exhaustion, despite um, how discouraged they are, despite not even really knowing if what they want to accomplish is going to be there, they push on anyway, and those are scenes that would have human weight. The passion for parents to get back their kids would have given um, Dreyfus and Gar motivation, and it would have made, each time their journey is interrupted, it would have raised the stakes. It would have presented a fresh new obstacle where he's being tried again by reality, basically saying, how much do you value your children? What are you willing to do? to get them back. And uh, that would have been an interesting movie. That would have been a movie with uh, some dramatic tension, some, some you know, passion, something interesting. You know what we got to do? I, I mean, you make a great point, and, and you do this a lot in the movie reviews, so I think it's about time we get a movie script together. <laughs> I can help. I've written yeah. one. With, uh, Let's do it. I mean, Daddy Warpig needs to write a movie script. I mean, you, or at least script doctor everything in existence. Yeah, he does. <laughs> so, um, do we have any other questions about Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the chat? They appear to just be mercilessly tearing it to shreds now. Okay. Um, <laughs> What's his name? Um, Castutus says, the takeaway I'm getting is to watch Escape to Witch Mountain instead. Which, actually, I yeah. really liked that movie. Do you like the one with the Rock, or did you like? Do you like the original? Why would Why would I see? Wait, the Rock? He did that? Yeah, they made a a, a remake of it with the Rock. I haven't seen it. I really, really like the Rock, but I really, really, <laughs> really don't like remakes of perfectly fine movies. 
just with modern people in it. Speaking yeah. of which, that's an excellent segue to our second movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you take this one, Brian? Okay, my pleasure. All right, folks. It, based on Stephen King novel of the same name, has been twice filmed, the first time in a TV miniseries first broadcast in 1990, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, with uh, Stephen King, Wallace, and Larry D. Cohen sharing the writing duties, or at least the writing credits. And most recently remade, well, just released, like the past week, but uh, seven years in the making, they've done a full Hollywood treatment theatrical remake of it. And, goodness, where to start in on this monster without getting into spoiler territory? I mean... Do we want to invoke a limited, if anything is spoiled for you, it's really your own fault because this is 30 years old clause? Because the source material is 30 years old. This might be a new movie for some people. I doubt for anybody listening, but could be. Um, well, why don't we talk about as much as we can without spoiling it? Because we can go into a lot without spoiling critical things. Okay. Yeah, um, let's, uh, let's play it safe. Agreed. Okay. It is kind of a hybrid. It's kind of a, a chimera because it's it's one part Stand By Me and one part The Dark Tower. You've got the coming-of-age story of a group of kids who, in the original, are growing up in the 60s. But now, one thing, uh, one innovation that the, the current year movie added was... They time-jumped it and uh, modernized it a bit, brought it up to the 80s. So, um, it's 2017, takes place in 1989. And uh, they throw in the requisite pop culture references, like if you look at the movie theater marquee in uh, the Dairytown Square, you'll see movies like Batman, you know, the Michael Keaton first Batman movie, Lethal Weapon 2, and A Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Although... I'm going to digress a bit. I don't know about you. I don't think they stuck the period 80s feel nearly as well as, like, say, Stranger Things did. Uh, no, they didn't. Okay, glad I'm not crazy. And it's interesting because the creators of Stranger Things lobbied to direct this movie, but were turned down for being too unseasoned. <laughs> right, yeah. It you don't have enough experience despite the quality of the experience that they have. Um, by the way, this is a, just a point of trivia. It, the monster awakens every 27 years to uh, wreak havoc in the town. You later find this out in the movie and it's, it's been in the book in the earlier miniseries from 1990. Speaking of which the miniseries of it was in 1990 when it came out. And uh, it has been 27 years since then that the movie was released. So, Oh, there's actually a bunch of creepy trivia revolving around the number 27 having to do with this franchise. Uh, I'll give you another one. Jonathan Brandis, who played Bill in the TV miniseries, died at age 27. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, and Bill Skarsgård, who took over uh, clowning duties from Tim Curry... Um, is also 27. 
like right now. <laughs> so there you go. Raisin Creek Factor. Doesn't Stephen King have a thing about numbers too, like in the in the uh, Dark Tower series? Nineteen. Don't even ask. Yeah, let's not open that can of worms there. That's that's a tall order. So, anyway, yeah, like Daddy Warpig said, that's the basic premise. Um, so there's a monster on the loose, hibernates for twenty years in in between murder sprees, but also there's an even more sinister twist to it. Um, which is that the town itself has somehow, to borrow a phrase from Pet Cemetery, gone sour. There's something wrong with the land. There, there's something wrong with the streets and arteries of the town and the people themselves, especially the adults. Because even though kids go missing, the authorities go through the motions of putting up wanted posters. In one very telling scene, you see someone stapling the wanted post, like the missing person's poster for the most recent kid to disappear over the picture of the last kid to disappear who hasn't been found yet. Like he's just been erased from memory. And you get this sense that the adults either are in on it to some extent, either wittingly or not, or they just don't care. And so it creates this wonderful, delicious sense of paranoia. Or, or they might not even notice. They might not even yeah. realize it beyond a superficial level. Um, yeah. At one point in one of the scenes, the bathroom explodes in blood. It's literally every oh. surface in the bathroom is covered with blood. And the adult who comes in to look at it can't see it. Just can't tell there's blood running down anywhere. Yeah, that, that scene is in both the miniseries and the movie. And uh, I thought they did a great job of remaking it and, in fact, turning it up a notch. Which is something I'm just going to spill the beans on right now. I thought that the I thought that its illusions in this movie surpassed the TV miniseries. And not just in terms of budget, in terms of creativity. Um, I thought they did a, an, a, an excellent job on the special effects. Just absolutely impeccable. Um, and I'll let up the, the framing and the mood and tone of the scares was just yeah. on another level. It was better. Like, um, uh, to, to avoid yeah. spoilers, there, there's one character who, whose worst fear is being trapped in a burning building because of a childhood trauma. And the first encounter he has with it is it's really subtle because he sees smoke coming from behind the door when he's in this alley behind the door of the building sees uh, smoke coming out and hears people screaming and then slowly you start to see orange flame lining the the cracks around the door and then you hear pounding on the door and then you see like crisp charred human hands like struggling to get out of this locked door and for a moment there it seems real like i honestly didn't know whether the building had caught on fire or not right because it, it looks real i mean then it becomes apparent that there's something abnormal something paranormal going on but they added that that's not in the book it's not in the original miniseries like all too often in the book in the original miniseries they just play two on the nose like oh well this thing likes to manifest as what the viewer is most afraid of what are kids afraid of ah, universal monsters so it shows up as like dracula and the wolfman and the mummy and i just never found that scary i, I found 
the illusions in this movie genuinely frightening. They, um, I saw the original miniseries, although I don't know if I've seen every single minute of it, but the original miniseries was grotesque in spots. Tim Curry delivers an excellent performance, and anytime he's on screen emoting, it's terrifying. Um, was it for two also? Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. It's menace. He conveys pure menace yeah. at all times. Yes. But, but the rest of the movie wasn't scary to me. I didn't find the rest of the movie scary. Like, at one point in the 1990 um, miniseries, they have a fridge pop open, and one of their friends who has committed suicide, his head's in there talking to them. So you have this disembodied head in this fridge. I didn't find it scary at all. It wasn't even disquieting. Because um, it's Judge Harry Stone from Night Court. How do you find that guy scary? It just... Uh, hey, it's my disembodied head head of a friend. Say something funny, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> you can't look like that. <laughs> um, someone was asking, by the way, in the chat, someone was asking if the book revolves around the kids or the adults. The book of It... Uh, revolves around both time periods equally, and they're interlaced. So we'll have a section of scenes. Uh, these kids meet it, the monster, when they're young, and then meet it again 27 years later when it comes back and starts killing again in dairy. So you'll have a chunk of scenes from the modern time, and then a chunk of scenes from 27 years ago, then a chunk of scenes from the modern time, and so on and so forth. And gradually, as the two a series of events and mythologies interweave, we learn more and more about what was really going on with it up until um, we get to the climax of, of this book, of the novel. Now, what they did for the, uh, the movie, the new movie, is they split it in two. There are going to be two movies. Um, they've just hired a screenwriter to start writing the script for the second movie. The first movie takes place entirely with the children, uh, 27 years before, uh, and since it's set in 1988, that means that the movie, when it comes out, should be set in 2015, and then the adult movie is what's going to be cast and what's going to be um, shot, and then you'll see the rest of uh, their adventures with uh, dealing with this monster, with this creature. And I think that was a great idea. It was a smart choice because then we get just one complete story with an arc for everybody, it has a beginning, middle, and end, but like a great monster movie, it, it's left open at the end for more. And originally, they didn't know if there were, was going to be a second one. They made this one and only made the decision to do the second one after they saw this one did. So apparently it has performed well enough to merit a sequel if they've already hired a screenwriter. Um. All right, should we, should we go into spoilers? Just say, okay, from here on in, we'll have spoilers. So if you if you don't want to have the movie uh, or book or TV series spoiled for you, you know, go ahead and fast forward to the very end. Is that cool? Oh, I'm, I'm totally done with that. Okay. Um, I thought the movie was genuinely frightening and terrifying a number of different moments. I thought a lot of the changes they made to what these kids were scared of made uh, were interesting and made sense. And um, 
I'm not going to say I enjoyed it because it wasn't an enjoyable film on that level, but it was a very effective horror film. I'm going to agree, and I'm going to amplify that because um, I have read the book, and I've seen the original 1990 miniseries multiple times. It it was my favorite Stephen King adaptation of all time until now, because in my opinion, it 2017 is the best version of the story. It's better than the novel, which I honestly hate, by the way. Like I, I barely got through it. It's super sloppy and Banning is weird, but uh, he, yeah, he Stephen King was writing really, really flabbily back then. You get a sense that he was thrashing around a lot of the time. You can you can taste the booze and coke through the pages. I mean, um, yeah. and, and that was towards his later years being an addict. I mean, in his early years being an addict, he he turned out some incredible, taut, brilliant stuff. I mean, Salem's Lot, Cujo. Um, the uh, the no, not the dark half. That's what I'm trying to think of. The Christopher the one they turned into a Christopher Walken movie. Oh, Dead Zone. Um, the Dead Zone. I mean, all of these have their weak spots. Uh, Firestarter, but they are all really taut books. Um, and then as he got more and more popular, he stopped getting edited as closely, and so he started getting away with a bunch of bad stuff that he shouldn't have been allowed to get away with. And he, I don't know, just the progression of his addiction. Um, Kind of, he he just started getting worse and worse. And even though it is brilliant in in a lot of ways, um, I'm talking about the book. It just has a lot of flab in it too. It could definitely stand to be tightened up in a lot of different places. Yeah, um, it, can, it can be cut down by thirty percent easily. Yes, absolutely. So I, I just I want to mention this really obliquely because it's kind of a distasteful subject that treads on the uh, implicit rating that we try to put on the show here. Um, but the book ends with a particular scene that involves the seven teenage characters engaging in specific actions, which most people don't really want to hear anything about. Um, it's weird. It's... It makes no sense in context of the book, and it's really disgusting and disquieting, um, nauseating. So, just to reassure you, that scene and anything really like it is not in this movie. Um, the particular problem that they're facing that leads to that scene doesn't appear in this movie. The only thing that could be thought to come near it is, I thought much, much more appropriate for the age of these characters and for, you know, what they were going through instead of doing what they did in the novel. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, you're not going to get anything clearer from me. Go, you know, Google it. You'll, I'm sure you'll run into it. Um, they do a uh, blood brother bond where, you know, if you remember in Huck Finn or one of those other older stories. You you would cut your palm, the other person cut their palms, you're bleeding, and then you would you know shake hands, and that signified that your blood was mixing. You were now blood brothers. Supposedly, I don't know if this is actually true or not. Supposedly, it comes from uh, American Indian lore, Native American lore that they used to do that. I don't know, but in any case, the seven kids at the end of this uh, movie make an agreement that if it if the monster is not dead. Um, they cut their palms, they hold hands in this circle, the seven of them, 
making themselves blood brothers, binding themselves with a pact. If it's not dead, they will come back in 27 years when it returns and kill it. So I thought one that made more sense. I thought it was more thematically appropriate for what had been established up to that point in the movie and the novel. It was not, it did not have the squick factor of what happened in the book. And it was more appropriate to children doing something children would do. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'd, I'd like to go a bit more in depth from a writing perspective and compare and contrast the novel and the miniseries that largely follows it plot-wise with the 2017 movie. And uh, as Raindrops and Stoic Rider in the chat are pointing out, the problems of the novel runs into largely stemmed from Stephen King being a discovery writer or you know, a pants or someone who just writes as he goes along without an outline necessarily. And you can really see that come through in the book because for one thing, the magic system for want of a better term is wildly inconsistent and it leads to some problems with dramatic tension and internal consistency. So for example, it's abilities. It's not that, just that they're, they're never explained. No hard limit is ever really set on them at, from the outset. And then King keeps writing himself in the corners and having to come up with ad hoc limitations or weaknesses for the monster in order to give his characters plot armor so important characters aren't killed off too early. So if you would have picked one of these and stuck with them, it would have been fine. But uh, for example, there are times in the book where, oh, well, the monster feeds on fear. So if you're not afraid, that will repel it. Or then, oh, well, yeah, um, tricks from like Western folklore, like using silver against a werewolf or something, that that's effective against it and can drive it off. Or, oh, Tibetan or Native American folklore, you know, about making, like laughing at, at devils, you know, laughter will drive it off. So, you know, you've got the, the Richie, the cut up comedian character, you know, that's, that's how he saves himself. Or just like strong belief in anything, like Stan puts in, you know, his bird watching book in the novel in the, the miniseries, for some reason that drives off it. And it's it's just a mess. It's it's all over the place. It's inconsistent. Because really in, in the book, there is no discernible reason other than the plot requiring it. Why this thing, when it found out that this kids these kids had its number and were a threat to it, didn't just wait until they were all asleep and sneak into the rooms and smother them with pillows. There's just there's no reason for that in, in the book. Um even to the point where it needs to like satanically tempt an already unbalanced psychotic bully character to be its hitman and try to take the, the kids out like again for no clearly defined reason other than Stephen King thought it, it was cool. Now the movie fixes that it, it does pick one of those things and it more clearly defines what the monster wants, what its modus operandi is, and how to use that against it. So I really appreciated that. And for that reason alone, I would say this is the preferred version. This, this is a superior version from a structural point of view. Here's a couple of things about the book that stand out. Uh, Stephen King was clearly, he, he was ripping off Stephen King. Um, 
Henry Bowers, who's the big bully, is it Ace? Is Ace the bully who shows up in Stand By Me and then a number of other of his Castle Rock books? Um, his one point played by Kiefer Sutherland. Anyways, Henry Bauer may as well have been that character. Um, they have there's no real differences between the two. So he's ripping off characters from his book, and the uh, the haunted house uh, may as well have been the haunted house that shows up in book four of the Dark Tower. Um, and yeah. there are several other things where you know it's just it's it's obvious that he is just. Um, uh, there are strong thematic consequences, strong tropes, strong common elements that have reappear frequently during uh, in in successive Stephen uh, uh, King stories. So yeah, exactly, and yeah, it. I don't think I mentioned it is a lot like a Stephen King kitchen sink novel where it's like I'm just gonna throw all sorts in there and just kind of see what develops. But like I said, it really could have used another round of editing. And I know he doesn't write from an outline, but at least get the first draft and then go back and then write an outline just to be consistent because again, in the book, you've got a monster that can really do anything. I mean, it can make you see and taste and, and touch and, and smell full sensory illusions, but also shapeshift. So you never know, like if you're really seeing it or if it's an illusion or not, um, it can telepathically communicate and control adults and unbalanced people. Uh, it doesn't, its power doesn't really seem to have any kind of range limit or time limit. So it might as well be a demigod. And it really leads to a lot of, improperly set up day six machinas and a lot of plot armor and you you do get you lose the sense that these kids are in trouble that they're really in danger because something is going to come and save them they're, they're going to figure out some achilles heel just some way to to get out of out of the scrapes they're in and i thought the movie handled that well i i did want to talk about the Tim Curry versus Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise performance. So what, what do you think of that? Go for it. Yeah, okay. Now, I'm, I'm going to agree with pretty much everyone in the chat that, yeah, Tim Curry, he, he's a legend. He's one of the great physical and character actors, played the darkness in Legend, you know, played uh, Sean Conn's Toadie in the Shadow with Alec Baldwin, and most famously played... Pennywise, the Dancing Clown, a.k.a. Robert Gray, in the original It miniseries. And, folks, there, there's no replacing Tim Curry. Right? His, his performance was a definitive take on that character. Anyone who would have tried to come in and copy his performance would have failed. So, Bill Skarsgård, who I did see and like in Hemlock Grove... Um, if anyone's seen the, the Netflix series based on the like the supernatural Dean YA novels, uh, he, he he wasn't bad in that. But I wouldn't have thought to cast him in this. He's, he's a relative unknown. But man, he he put in the work. Um, he trained with a contortionist. Um, he learned to make his eyes look in two different directions. So they didn't have to use CG for that. He just 
I wouldn't be surprised if he drove around in a panel van with a creepy hobo for a few months just to get the dialogue down. Um, the, the difference is Tim Curry comes off as like a bombastic crackpot carnival barker. Right, he's really comfortable, really energetic. I mean, I'm more of a funny ha-ha clown. Bill Skarsgård comes off as a psycho who got himself a clown costume and like hangs out under overpasses waiting for kids and small animals to come by. I mean, he, he is creepier. He's much more of the John Wayne Gacy style kind of character. And um, Tim Curry. His voice... Yeah, up until he goes monstrous, seems like a genuinely mirthful, you know, over-the-top clown. He seems like something that kids would want to be friends with. Up until he goes monstrous. Yeah, he even has that that laugh, which I love it when it takes on that sinister tone because it when he switches monstrous and, and you know he, he puts that growl in his voice and the snarl you know his lip goes up and then he does the laugh again that <laughs> it just it slays me because it's it stops being mirthful and it's just mean yeah and Skarsgård's voice is, is more higher pitched it's more effeminate almost and it's it's quieter like I did find myself having to strain to, to listen at a couple points and I actually found out that um, there there were a few lines where he's speaking Swedish, so it's actually not meant to be understood by most audiences. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, the director let him speak Swedish in uh, a couple of scenes. And again, I, I think it works because you're you're hanging on his his every word more. But in, in terms of give us a better performance, um, yeah, I've got to say Tim Curry. There, there just is no topping that. But they offered him the role because they knew that he turned it down. So what are you going to do? I really think that they they did the best they could in his absence. And Skarsgård decided to go in a different direction. I think that was wise, and I think it paid off. I mean, and and I, I would like to say, despite all the. Um, praise I'm heaping on Tim Curry, justifiably. Um, Skarsgård does not do a bad performance. He does an incredible performance. If Stephen King, or if um, Tim Curry hadn't done this, and you had some other actor um, playing the part of Pennywise in 1990, we would be talking about how completely uh, Skarsgård blew that guy away, how he made that earlier Pennywise look like a joke, because anybody else but Tim Curry couldn't have pulled it off. So uh, this guy is second only to Tim Curry. If they would have um, had like Dom DeLuise playing Pennywise in the original, you know, maybe yeah, I, President Skarsgård. There is just no one who who could have pulled off being Tim Curry other than Tim Curry. And Skarsgård um, is absolutely does a masterful job. Does a great job. He's very menacing. He's very um, he at points in time seems like he, he radiates this innocence at times, but underneath that innocence, you can tell it's just superficial. It's surface level innocence. It's surface level mirth. And he always has an undertone of, uh, of unearthliness of unease. 
it's he's slimier and more unctuous than Curry. Yeah. And yeah, there there are times when just from his physical performance alone, you kind of get the sense that well, okay, well you know this is just like an animal that's eating to survive. You know, it's doing what it has to do. But then the mask slips, and he's like, "Nah, he enjoys it. He enjoys torturing kids." So, uh, Monster Sweet Fear, uh, watch this space. Um, is there any other? Uh, it, 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 I don't know. I don't know if we've if we've made it clear. It's not. The new It is not a bad movie. It's a great horror movie. It is not an entertaining movie, but it's not supposed to be. It's a horror movie. Um, It is not like uh, a lot of the recent teen slasher movies uh, where they've been remaking uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or they've been remaking Friday the 13th or remaking whatever. They're, They're just... They're light. They're fluffy. They're not menacing they're not really horror and i don't know how it does it i'd have to sit down and work through how they did it but this is an actual horror movie it's actually heavy it has weight and these scenes in which um in which the children are being faced alone by pennywise you do not get the sense at least i didn't get the sense that they're safe right that they could just get out of this or that something was going to rescue them. Um, Again, you know, because I told you that they get together at the end of the movie, you know that each of them will have survived their solo attacks by Pennywise. But it's, but while you're, and and I knew that. I've read the book two or three times. I've seen the Mary series. Um, And so I knew that, um, that the children would escape at least those are the ones who are in the core group, but you didn't get that feeling watching the scene. There is genuine palpable menace and threat. You really feel like the characters could be doomed. Yeah. That's not to say that that's not to say that they come out unscathed by any means though. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, at the very end of like when they're making the, there's a, a scene where one character turns to another and says, I hate you. And then it's put up as a joke, like he smiles and laughs, but no, you can tell that both are genuine. Like he's still friends with this guy and he loves him, but because of what he's put him through, there there is hatred there. And it makes sense in that character's arc. So it'll be fun to see how they work through that in the second movie. Um, yeah, I am looking forward to the second movie. Yeah. Uh, and to answer your so... question... One of the ways in which they did transcend the, the original and make the horror work is with character. Oddly enough, I can't believe I'm saying this about a movie made in 2017, but it has more heart than the 1990 miniseries. Yes. Yeah, the 1990 miniseries was kind of was shallow. Yeah. I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but I agree with you. Um, it was superficial. The, the people who wrote the script were basically transcribing the events of the novel with certain exceptions and compromises that had to be made for television, compromises that had to be made to you know shrink that sucker, that huge novel down into uh, what could be put into a miniseries, a four-hour miniseries on television. But um, they didn't... 
sit down and try to get inside uh, the story. Try to really understand the story. Try to um, work through the story so that they understood the menace. They felt the menace, and they could could uh, communicate the menace in dialogue and events and in in you know what, what's on screen, what you see. Um, they didn't have a director who could communicate to to the actors. Um, a real sense of of menace. It it just um, it's it's a low budget, but that they didn't get bad actors. They got good actors for it. But it was a TV movie, and I'm not saying that you can't make a great horror film on a low budget. In fact, I'm the one who's been arguing that low budget films are often you know the best for horror movies, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. Almost nothing of a budget, fabulous horror movie. Um, but it's just, it feels rote. The miniseries from 1990 feels rote. It feels like it was put together on an assembly line where they put it all together to get Stephen King's it, um, a story on the screen, but didn't really sit down to um, recapitulate what would make it wrenching and horrifying on, uh, uh, as, uh, as an event. Agreed. I, I do want to state one area where I thought this movie fell a little flat. And I touched on it before, which is in recreating the, the 80s period feel. One thing that I notice about King movies that are set in the 50s and 60s, like Stand By Me or the It miniseries, is that the filmmakers almost fetishize 50s and 60s America. Right? It, it's played totally straight. You know, the, everything from the rock and roll songs to the TV shows to the movies, you know, to the vintage bikes that the kids ride. Like it's it's all venerated. It's put on a pedestal. And what do they do with Gen Xers 80s nostalgia? It's played for laughs. Like uh the new kids on the block references, the Millie Vanilli references. This movie felt like all of the kids' attitudes, the attitudes of the adults, the attitudes of the town, it was a nineteen fifties movie. Yes. It wasn't set in the 80s. The racial attitudes, the attitudes towards what the kids are doing for fun, um, there is no one who sits down and pulls out Super Mario Brothers and a Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, there just there isn't anything. Kids who grew up on TV, kids who grew up uh, or who were experiencing video game systems for the very first time, it, it all of the leisure activities the kids do are all 1950s stuff they're mm -hmm. not 1980s stuff it just uh i mean it i don't know how well it would have worked but you could have used super mario brothers in a terrifying fashion because what is the first level of super mario brothers or what is a constant mm -hmm. theme throughout super mario brothers pipes pipes right right I mean, somebody's playing Super Mario Brothers, and monsters come out of the pipes, and all of a sudden, this 8-bit, tiny, Pennywise clown comes out of the pipes and begins interacting with the kid and then gets out of the TV into the world, and, and you know, he's coming after them, and, and I... I, I there are a lot of things you could do to make that cheesy. 
and bad. But there's a lot of things you could have done. And it's set in the 80s. It's something 80s. It's it's period. Um, you know, instead of going out and hanging out on bikes and hanging out at a um, – and throwing rocks and stuff for fun, the kids would have been watching VHS tape or, or watching TV, you know? It just – it's yeah. not set in the 80s. It was set in the 50s. It's – it's really meta that you mentioned that because one of the movies on the marquee at the Dairy Theater is on Elm Street Part 5 where Freddy does that. Remember with the power glove? <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's referenced in it. But uh, I don't know. I have my suspicions that this has more to do with uh, the business end of Hollywood because this really smacks of the setting being changed to the 80s in a later script draft and then they couldn't get the rights in time or the rights were too expensive. I mean, they don't even mention the Rubik's Cube, do they? No. They mention Street Fighter. Not Street Fighter 2. The super obscure Street Fighter 1. <laughs> which no one knew. I never heard about that until after Street Fighter 2. Did, did they go to a... People who play Street Fighter 2 call it Street Fighter. I, I mean, even though most of us didn't know about Street Fighter 1. Yeah, exactly. In the scene where Bill invites Richie to go do something with him after school, and Richie's like, oh, I can't. i got to practice Street Fighter. I'm like, wait a minute. This, this is 89. Street Fighter 2 hadn't been released yet, and unless. And then, yeah, they show him playing an original Street Fighter cabinet. I'm like, what is that cabinet doing in a small rural town in Maine? Yeah, they... It's, it, it's it's like someone said, hey, we should have Street Fighter, and then someone said, oh, but Street Fighter wasn't out until, and then they said, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll just use the old one. They won't know the difference. No one talks about going... Oh, go ahead. No one talks about going to the mall or malls being a thing. No one talks about, I mean, pretty much anything from the 80s that, that kids really, you know did in the 80s. No one talks about any of it. Um, yeah, the only time they do, it's a joke. They, they talk about like Millie Vanilli and New Kids on the Block. They, they don't treat it seriously at all. So, you know, 50s nostalgia has to be venerated and uplifted. 80s nostalgia has to be mocked. Oh, yeah, they do mention Michael Jackson getting burned at one point, but how many people are even going to know what that is? Yeah. If you'd mentioned well, Michael Jackson being Michael Jackson, you know, that... You know, if the kid had liked Michael Jackson tapes or something, that would have made more sense. That would have been just as period, um, and you didn't necessarily have to play it for laughs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Raindrops in the chat is asking, what arcade games were popular at the time period? Uh, that was a little before I started hanging out in arcades. Anyone want to field that one? You want to say, was it 89 you said? Yeah. 89 would have been all the old classics like Galaga and stuff, uh, Crystal Castles. Um, I don't think Final Fight was out yet. Uh, so it was still those sort of, you know, shoot 'em up, uh, space shooters, that sort of thing. Oh, Sega but, stuff like Outrun. And... Yeah, yeah. Uh, that yeah. sort of thing. That, that, those would have been. Actually, 89 might be a little too early for those as well. Uh, but I remember, oh, like uh, Qbert and Pac-Man. Qbert and Pac-Man. Those would be the, the big ones. Like that. I think Pac-Man was out in, what, 78, something like that. But still, maybe Ms. Pac-Man. 
Yeah, they still would have had it in the arcades. I mean, it's it's perennial. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they they should have had somebody who is researching this movie to write it sit down and watch War Games. Yeah. Um, because War Games was made, you know, in, in what eighty six I think it came out. Um, but that showed a bunch of what you know, school kids were into in 1986 and they could have at least said, okay, we need to play it like this. We need to play it like that. It just, the attitudes the character had were not attitudes of, of 1988 people. They were attitudes of 1950s people. That's what it comes down to. Um, Agreed. So, yeah. When War Games was right, well, 83. Let's say that again. War Games was 83. 83. Okay, my bad. Um, no problem. So, all right, I think we've, we've hammered that one into the dust. <laughs> oh, yeah. Any, anything any anything else we uh, you guys want to uh, talk about uh, as far as it goes before we take off? I'm pretty spent, I'll be okay. honest. <laughs> any last words, Dorano? I'm just glad to hear that, once again, uh, a movie that I had no interest in seeing actually didn't suck. Thanks for the review, guys. And thanks for everybody who listens and hangs out in chat. Yeah, I'm actually really surprised that a 2017 horror movie wasn't garbage. I, I would, am, am surprised and pleased and shocked. So, Oh, did you guys um, see I, the previews of this movie, Mother? Oh, my goodness. No. Speak, speaking of bad horror movies, uh, some weird Jennifer Lawrence I, horror thing. It looks like Rosemary's Baby, Darren Aronofsky's remake of Rosemary's Baby. I haven't paid attention to it. I haven't watched the trailer, but um, and, and Jennifer Lawrence, her shine as a person is worn off. She's become just another narcissistic Hollywood celeb, and so I don't go see movies just because she's in it anymore. Um. So, I didn't see anything about about that movie that made me interested in seeing it. Any any last thoughts, Brian? Yeah, it it's weird to say this again, but right now my my feeling is that it twenty seventeen is the best remake I've seen since the Coen Brothers True Grit. Oh, that was another good one. Yeah. That was a really good movie, the Coen Brothers. I mean, the original too, but the Coen Brothers one was also really good. Okay. Um, since uh, Brian didn't, I will. Um, there are links to Brian's uh, Dragon-nominated um, and Dragon Award-winning Soul Cycle in the description of the video below. There's links to his story, Him of the Pearl, in the description below. There's links to my uh, articles my weekly blog posts I do at the Staley House blog in the description below the video, and there is a link to the Burning Hill Golfers in the uh, a huge, absolutely huge, high-res picture of conflagration descending down a hill towards uh, some men who are just, you know, out there playing uh, playing nine holes. Um, it's a great picture, so you can just take a look at it. It's it's really cool. Not photoshopped, not uh, manipulated in any way. What you see in the image is actually what really happened. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been Geek Gab um, for Saturday, September 9th, 2017. We appreciate everyone who turned in to listen. Uh, we hope you had a great break. We had a, hope you had, a, you had a great weekend last weekend, the way uh, most of us did. 
And uh, we just want to remind you we're available on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekgab. We're available on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash geekgab. Uh, and we're also available uh, through iTunes and the Google Play Store to subscribe to the podcast and get on any of your Android or uh, Apple iOS devices. Just do a search for GeekGab in any of those places and you can find us because we are there. We are leaving you for today. Leaving you for today, but we will, we will be back.